0: This episode contains graphic content that may not be suitable for all listeners. It does have the word murder in the title. Listener discretion is advised. This is Ann Arbor Stories. I'm Rich Reddy. It was Sunday, September 16th, 1951. Around 2.30 in the afternoon, when 34-year-old Pauline Campbell left her rooming house at 1424 Washington Heights beginning her 15-minute walk to work. She worked in the maternity ward at St. Joseph's Hospital, which at the time was on North Engels and Ann Streets, where the University of Michigan Nursing School is today. She took care of those tiny, brand-new babies and their mothers who brought them into the world. She turned on to observatory, her white nurse's shoes squeaking softly on the sidewalk. Dressed in her bright white nurse's uniform, a raincoat draped over her arm because the evening forecast called for drizzle. She carried a red leather purse holding her wallet, a lighter, and a brown paper bag with her dinner inside. She finished her shift around 11 p.m. that night, gave report, and gathered her things for the walk home. It was dark out, but only a 15-minute walk, less than a mile. And this was Ann Arbor, not New York City. Pauline Campbell had been making that walk for some time, one of the benefits of living so close. She was cautious, not scared. So she started walking back home, her white nurse's shoes squeaking again on the sidewalk. She walked east towards University Hospital, then south back down Observatory, then east again on Washington Heights. Her place was about halfway down the block on the right, backing up to the Arboretum. It was dark, nearly midnight, always deserted. She likely didn't pay special attention to the headlights. She was hard of hearing, so probably didn't hear the muffled footsteps behind her didn't realize what was happening until it was too late. A U of M medical student found the body sometime after midnight and called the police. Three regular boys, born to three normal homes. William R. Morey, 18, Jacob M. Pell, 18, and David L. Royal, 17. Pardon the middle initials, killers always get them. All three graduated from Ypsilanti High that spring were each doing okay for themselves. Maury was in his first week of classes as a freshman at Michigan Normal College, now Eastern Michigan, living in Ypsilanti. His pal, Pell, lived in Ipsy too, working as a mechanic. Royal lived 15 miles south in Milan, where he worked construction. All three boys still lived with their parents. That Sunday night, September 1951, started like most other nights for the boys. Pell borrowed his parents' two-door 1948 Chevy-style Master Club Coupe, a big chrome monster that seated five. Picked up his friends, then the boys drove to Milan to meet a pair of wild girls that Maury was acquainted with. Maybe they got the beer first, buying two cases of Miller High Life, long neck bottles with gold labels. It didn't matter that they were underage. A number of taverns around Milan had no questions asked policies when it came to selling beer to minors which was great for regulars like Maury, Royal, and Pell. They cruised dirt roads, the radio playing Rosemary Clooney, Perry Como, Nat King Cole, Tony Bennett. They pulled bottles out of the cases one after another, popping the tops, joking, laughing, flirting. Pell drove while Maury and Royal canoodled with the girls. They parked near a cornfield in Milan, turned the headlights on, the radio up, reached into the beer case again and again and again, chucking the empties into the field. The wild girls weren't wild enough, and the beer was nearly gone. So the kids piled into the car, drove the girls home. It was still early, 11 o'clock. Maury liked heading to Ann Arbor some nights to cruise for women, some nights to steal hubcaps on dark and deserted roads near the Arboretum. That's where they headed this night, driving towards the hospital, all three varying levels of drunk. They neared the Arboretum, and Maury told Pell to stop. Rooted around in the backseat of the car, opened the door, stepped into the night. In his hand, he held a large rubber mallet, the kind used to bump out heavy car fenders without leaving a scratch. Pell brought it home from the shop to do some light auto body repair over the weekend. A 12-inch long wooden handle with a 4-inch wide head. Maury tucked it in the back of his belt and disappeared into the dark. Pell eased the car down the dark side street, lost sight of Maury. Knew what his friend was capable of. He parked the car and killed the lights. There they waited, windows down, radio off, while Maury stalked ahead in the dark. They probably saw the nurse he was following, dressed all in white, white uniform, white shoes. Maury hit Campbell so hard with the mallet that police found brain fluid spattered on the door of a car parked at the curb in front of her house. The first blow knocked her to the ground. It's unclear how many more were delivered before Maury dragged her body towards the street, hissing for help from his friends. Maury had her partway in the back seat before Pell protested loud enough to stop him, shoved the still-breathing Pauline Kale out of the car and into the street, where she lay at an awkward angle. Maury snatched her red leather purse, climbed into the passenger seat, and Pell peeled away. Pell drove fast, back towards home, back towards Ypsilanti taking Huron River Drive. Maury ransacked the purse. A cigarette lighter, a watch, $1.50. They tossed the purse off the second bridge on Huron River Drive, heading towards Ypsilanti, right by Superior Road. They tossed the empty beer cases, too. Back on Washington Heights, Pauline Campbell lay in the street. She wasn't dead when police arrived at 12.20 a.m., Then-Police Lieutenant Walter Krasny shined his flashlight on the bloody body, half in the street, half on the grass, and saw her head weaving from side to side. She was making noises, trying to speak. Krasny leaned close to her face, her face partly obscured by blood-soaked hair, asked her questions. Campbell had trouble answering, her words unintelligible. She died in the hospital soon after probably around the time the three boys pulled into a truck stop in Ypsilanti, bought $0.94 cents worth of gas with the stolen $1. fifty, plus sandwiches and coffee to help sober them up. Not that you're feeling sorry for these three right now, but just in case, don't. Don't feel sorry for William R. Morey, 18, Jacob M. Pell, 18, and David L. Royal, 17. None of them confessed to police. None of them turned themselves in. None of them confessed to close friends about the murder. And two of them, Maury and Pell, had attacked a nurse four days earlier. Maury swinging a 12-inch crescent wrench at a university hospital nurse walking home late at night, not far from where they murdered Pauline Campbell. But Maury flinched, or missed his mark. The blow landed, but it was glancing, intended to stun. The nurse screamed and ran, reported it to police. It was this attack that Maury bragged about to a former Ipsy High classmate and friend at Michigan Normal, telling tall tales on campus to a sophomore who happened to be on probation, who could really use the $500 reward and maybe a favor from the court. Daniel Bahi walked into Ann Arbor Police headquarters at 3 p.m. on Wednesday, September 19th, with a tip in the mallet murder. Two hours and five minutes later, The police pulled up to Doran's Chevrolet in Ypsilanti and arrested Pell. Across town, 25 minutes later, police dragged Maury out of the bath and placed him in handcuffs. At the same time, Royal was arrested at home. The suspects were questioned for four hours before being driven to Michigan State Police Headquarters in East Lansing for a proper grilling. Pell confessed at 11 p.m., implicating the other two. Royal confessed 30 minutes later. Maury cracked at midnight. By 4.30 a.m., all three had signed typed confessions and were put in squad cars bound for Ann Arbor. In those early morning hours, Pell was booked for murder at Ann Arbor Police Headquarters, then taken to the county jail. But Maury and Royal weren't taken to HQ right away. They were driven to that second bridge near Superior Road, the bridge they tossed the red leather purse off of while Pell's car sped back to Ypsilanti. Blood on the floor mat, upholstery, a blanket, a jacket. They stood on that bridge in 50-degree fall weather, the sun rising, burning off the morning dew. Mist shrouded the bridge, the two killers, hands cuffed in front of them, peering over the edge, pointing vaguely to areas where the purse may have landed. Tired, dumb, shivering, stupid kids whose lives were essentially over. For whom this might be one of the last opportunities to be outdoors for any substantial amount of time while not surrounded by high walls, barbed wire, and men in towers with guns police never found that purse and how they tried to judge how the river may have affected it investigators tossed similar purses off the bridge to observe their movement purse after purse thrown over that second bridge at superior road they did find the mallet at Doran chevrolet returned by pell monday morning after the murder they also found one of the empty cases of miller high life stained with blood Despite the confession, the defendants forced the case to be brought to trial. Jury selection started on Halloween day, 1951. There was snow on the ground. The 14-member jury, seven men, seven women, were selected after a lengthy search for people who hadn't heard about the case or already formed an opinion. All but four jurors had children of their own. The courtroom was packed each day. The story was the buzz of Ann Arbor. It made national news. Curious teenagers, many former classmates of the boys, skipped school to find a seat in the courtroom and were written up for truancy after their pictures appeared in the newspaper. The three mothers, Mrs. Maury, Mrs. Royal, and Mrs. Pell, sat in the courtroom weeping often. They had raised their sons to be good boys, given them every advantage. The guilt and shame of what-ifs. How could such a quiet community raise such heinous killers? Signed confessions were probably enough to put them away. Add police testimony and the autopsy, and it was a pretty open-and-shut case. The defense didn't try to argue innocence, just mitigate the sentence. On the stand, Maury claimed not to have remembered the fatal blow. Didn't know if the mallet made a sound when it crushed Pauline Campbell's skull. Or how many times he struck her. Maury stammered and sobbed, his voice breaking. He said he drank 10 or 11 beers that night, At one point, the prosecutor asked him to examine the rubber mallet used to end Pauline Campbell's life. When Maury declined to take it, the prosecutor tossed it into his lap. The teen recoiled like a bag of poisonous snakes had been dumped on him, shoving it to the floor where it bounced hard, resting on its side. The three were found guilty on November 14, 1951. Charged with feloniously, willfully, and with malice afterthought, the murder of Pauline Campbell. Nine days later, Maury and Pell were sentenced to life. Royal received a 22-year term. After the prison terms were delivered, the police released a shocking bit of news. Maury and Pell had helped concoct a jailbreak, set to happen on Thanksgiving Day. Together with three other inmates, they'd fashioned a workable jail key out of a coat hanger and planned to fly the coop before sentencing. Yet again, someone ratted them out. None of the men finished their sentences. Pell and Royal were released sometime in the 1960s for time served and good behavior. Maury received special attention from then Governor William Milliken, who commuted his life sentence in 1970, making him eligible for parole. Maury met before the parole board that June after spending more than half his life in prison. He was a model inmate, earning his degree, Starting a prison blood donation program. Nothing like the kid who killed the nurse. He smoked and wept for most of his hearing and then was released, moving to Arizona to take a job as an accountant. Maury's parents, both still alive. A 37 year old man who hadn't tasted freedom since Harry Truman was president, before Alaska and Hawaii were admitted to the Union. William R. Maury, then 18, now 37 walked into prison with Johnny Ray and the four lads atop the charts and sat in the back seat of his parents' car, the Jackson 5 on the radio, while they drove home. But at least Maury has a story after 1951, even if we don't know it. The same can't be said for Pauline Campbell. Ann Arbor Stories is presented by Rumblepack Media in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This episode was written and read by me, Rich Reddy, with recording and sound production by Brian Peters. Thanks as always to the Ann Arbor District Library and their amazing archive staff who continue to help us locate and research these stories. Please follow us on Twitter at Ann Arbor Stories or drop us a line at Ann Arborstories at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode, or any of the previous stories we've told. Thanks again for listening.